Welcome back to Finnegan's Take. In this conversation, Jerry is burned out from SOS and requests a transfer to Midway Airport, a destination considered to be a retirement home for policing. He lands there months before the terrorist attacks of September 11th and has a run-in with Louis Farrakhan's entourage when they are trying to bully their way past security. Jerry also details a strange event at the airport on 9-11 when the concourse is on lockdown and four men try and escape by exiting onto the runway. We also discuss an encounter with Father Flager and his security detail when they call Jerry to harass a small market for selling one-hitters and bongs. Here's the conversation. Right around 2000, I just kind of got tired of what was going on with the administration there in SOS. We got a new commander who I was not keen on, Jim Darling. Him and I just, we didn't get along well, and he was going to win out because he was the commander, of course. I just decided that it was time to take a break while he was there. I knew I could always go back to SOS, so I approached my deputy chief, saw him in the building. I rode the elevator down with him and had a discussion about taking a break. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, how about Midway Airport? He said, okay, we'll take care of it. So I was transferred to Midway Airport a short time after that conversation. Worked for a gentleman out there for a short period of time. He was the commanding officer in charge of Midway Airport, which was known as Airport Law Enforcement South. It was uh, Dennis Rail, great guy, who would go on to become the commander of the 8th District shortly upon me being transferred to Midway. Was Midway known as like a place to take a breather? Yeah, yeah. It was laid back, extremely laid back. It could all be, almost be referred to as a retirement home. Nothing happened in there. Minor stuff. Kind of thought maybe it would be a nice place to go. So ended up going there. Denny Rail got promoted to commander of eight. The new CO was a person I knew. I met him when I was in the academy. I had a conversation with him at the cafeteria. His name was Jim Carroll. Good guy. I liked working for him. He was a good person. And I worked under his command. So I was there for the latter part of 2001. Got there right before September 11th. Probably, I believe I got there in like May or June, I want to say. And this was before uh, the world changed. As far as security at airports, there was always security airports, checkpoints, but not as stringent after September 11th. So uh, I was working there. It was under construction. They were building new sections, uh, new terminal arms at the airport. It was It was kind of slow. wasn't a lot going on. Smoking on flights in the bathroom. You'd have to meet the plane at the gate. Sometimes unruly people were drunk, so you would have to escort them out of the airport. Most of the time, unless they did something extreme, the airline did not press charges. The airline, even though the airports are owned by the city of Chicago, all the airlines put a lot of money into those airports. In essence, they're paying a lot of money into the tax structure there to build those you know, facilities. And truly, a lot of that money goes back into the city. Uh, so the airlines have a lot to do with paying you know, for the police. And the city of Chicago also has the Department of Aviation Police there. They were full-time police officers, certified police officers. The city never let them carry guns for some reason. So I thought it was kind of odd, but they had us there too, which police officers, and we were armed. But one particular night, I was getting ready to go in and walk out for the evening. And two women were walking, employees for one of the businesses in there. 
were walking and they got my attention by flagging me down in the hallway on the concourse and told me that their boss was having some kind of asthma attack or something. And so I asked them if they had a key and they said they did. So I took the key, walked towards the office and uh, what it was was a, was a store that sold periodical snacks, uh, drinks and things like that. So I opened the door. As soon as I opened the door, I observed a black guy and an Asian guy in there and I smelled blood and there was blood everywhere all over the inside of the office on the walls and on the floor. This black kid had got into the office and stabbed the manager who the uh, Asian kid was the manager and stabbed him about 27 times with Phillips screwdriver in the back and the neck and then the arm, the chest. So this guy was bleeding, but he was, I tell you, he was fighting for his life. Because this guy was unable to take this guy down, and he was a lot smaller than the uh, the offender was. But I guess, you know, it was fight or flight. So he was fighting for his life, basically. So when I opened the door, the, uh, the offender kicked the door closed on me, pushed the door back open. I had my gun in my hand, and I ordered him down onto the ground. And he complied, which I was surprised. By that time, another officer was with Terry Kozupski, who had worked with his brother Ed in some district gang tech team. Terry and I took the guy into custody. And took him to the office, called for an ambulance, uh, had the guy looked at, the, the victim. And then we took the guy into the 8th District and ended up getting him charged. And he, he pled out. He pled out for, I want to say he took like 30 years or 27 years for the armed robbery because he had a pretty extensive record. And he charged him with aggravated battery and attempted murder. And he never went to trial. He pled out. But, you know, it was the first time they had a, an armed robbery at Midway Airport in pra- practically 30-odd years. Why did the employees think that he was having an asthma attack? Because they heard something behind closed doors and they couldn't get in and they didn't know there was an offender in there? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. They might have been in on it and then had second thoughts about it because it was it was kind of strange. This guy had picked that particular office at the end of the night. There was about $28,000 in uh, proceeds in cash that he was trying to get out of there. He had it in a bag. And he was trying to take it out of there. That was a lot of dough for that airport. I sensed that they were involved in it, but we never took them in and questioned them. There was just so much going on with the guy getting stabbed and everything else. We were fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time. Probably saved the guy's life. So it was nice. I mean, we got an award out of it. Pretty much after that, it kind of died down again and there was nothing going on. So I was kind of going going out of my mind there. That was exactly what I was going to ask you. Was this the breather that you needed in general from leaving SOS? Yeah, but sometimes grass is always greener. So it went from 100 miles an hour down to 15 miles an hour. And it was like unbearable. And I worked with a guy one day standing at the checkpoint. He was an older copper and he was standing there and I was speaking to him and he had some sunglasses on inside. He was standing up against the wall and he was snoring. So he was literally standing up like a horse sleeping. And I was like, I was kind of like, what the fuck? That's kind of a practiced thing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I don't know how the fuck he fell asleep standing up. You know, he was leaning on the wall, you know, with his head to the wall, his back on the wall, his shoulders squared up on the wall. I'm not exaggerating. I heard him snoring. You know, he had sunglasses on, and I'm like, what the fuck, this guy's sleep. I'm talking to him, he's sleeping. 9-11 will stop that behavior. Yeah, well, it did. 
it did because it was like a atom bomb drop, man. Everything changed. The whole world changed. And I'm going to tell you, that particular day, and I was still assigned to Midway, I was, was sleeping because I had to go to work in the afternoon and I had stayed up late. So I slept in. Jane woke me up and she said, hey, something's going on. So what happened? She's a plane just crashed in the World Trade Center. And I go, well, it's happened before in New York. No, not the World Trade Center. But then like less than an hour later, she came back in. She said, oh, my God, another plane just crashed into the other building. And I jumped up and ran to the TV and to hell. And I knew it was a terrorist attack. I called the office midway. I asked to speak to the lieutenant. And when Jim Carroll got on the phone, I, I, just, I said, boss, you want me to come in? And he goes, yeah, everyone's going to be coming in. He said, bring your helmet. And I'm like, okay. I mean, <laughs> bring your helmet, all right. So we went into the airport and started reporting. Very surreal. By that time, planes had been grounded nationwide. The terminals were loaded with people. And I've never seen so many passports from foreign countries in my life. I, I just thought it was awful strange for an airport on the south side of Chicago, even though it was a busy airport. It wasn't truly an international airport, like it's it's called an international airport, but it flies to Mexico and the Caribbean now. But I just thought it was odd. But we started looking at everybody's passports and identifications, and I couldn't believe the people, foreign travelers that were on the south side on that particular day. And what's even crazier is four guys ran through a fire alarm door onto the tarmac. They were taken into custody by the field car, which is one of our cars. It, it's strictly out on the field. goes around. You know, make sure everything's right out there. And some of the other guys, I did not take them into custody, but they were brought into the office. There were four Middle Eastern guys. The FBI was responding to Midway Airport. And when they arrived on the scene, they interviewed these guys and then let them go on their way. I thought it was the oddest thing. They ran out the and ran out of fire alarm door onto the tarmac, and they cut them loose. And the craziest thing is, about three days later, they asked about their whereabouts again. And they had their information, but they said, did you take good records on them? Do you have more information as far as their local addresses and all that? I'm thinking, you interviewed them. If you're looking for them now, it's a little late. You let them go. You would think that if they let them go, they were following them to see where they were going. That's a possibility. I mean, I don't you you know, would hope that that's what well, they I were doing. Well, I just thought it was odd that they called our office. I didn't speak to them, but I was told that they called looking to get some more information on those guys from us, from the records uh, that we took that day, the contact cards that we made out of them. And I, I just thought it was very strange. Well, they ran out of an emergency door onto the tarmac, so I think they should have went to jail for the day at least, or at least for eight hours to see who they truly were get them fingerprinted and everything else, but who knows what their true intentions were. Maybe it was nothing. I just thought it was odd that the FBI had called two or three days later, inquiring about them further. So by this time, the airport's loaded with cops from everywhere. Special operations is there. The FBI's there. There's some sheriff's police there. So after that, it just got to the point where there was nothing going on. So I tried to tough it out promised they were going to put a tech team up there like they do at O'Hare Airport, but I'm thinking there's nothing going on there. What are we going to do as a tech team? So I ended up leaving and going over back to work for a while until I went back to special operations. So my airport thing was kind of short-lived. There was one 
other story I did want to bring up about the airport that I almost forgot about. After September 11th, we were working the checkpoints. There were stringent guidelines that had to be followed. Very tight. I'm sure if you traveled at that time, you would know too. More scrutiny than ever before. So I was assigned to the checkpoint the one night at the top of the ticketing gates, our agents on the desks, and the baggage carousels were in the lower level. And then the exit level where people could come and go was the second level, pardon me, where you, people would depart when their family members or cabs or limousines would pick them up. So I was standing there and I noticed a group of individuals walk in, probably about 15 to 20 individuals. They were all males and they were all wearing bow ties. So I kind of assumed who they were by their appearance. I was standing there and one of the gentlemen approached me and walked up and identified himself as a secretary of the state police officer. And I said, how are you? What can I do for you? And he said, well, we're going to go down and pick up the minister. And I said, the minister, the minister of what? And he said, the minister, the minister. And I said, I'm I'm not following you. And he said, Minister Farrakhan, where's bodyguard detail? We want to go down and pick him up. I said, sure, you can go down and pick him up. He goes, no, no, we all have to go down and pick him up. I said, well, I can't allow that. And he goes, what do you mean? He's a VIP. And then I said, I, listen, I understand that. That's your prerogative if you think he's a VIP. But my thing is, you can't all go down there. There's no necessity for that. This is a secure facility. He's under no threat here. If one of you want to go down, I said, maybe even two of you. But I can't let everybody go down there. This is after 9-11. Yes, correct. They're trying to circumvent traditional security, or not traditional, the new security procedures Mm. post 9-11. They're trying to circumvent that? They didn't want to go through, well, they didn't have tickets. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. They did not have tickets, for one. My problem with this whole thing was parents who were sending their children off to military training or deployment, girls or boys that were already in the military that were being deployed now because we're at a heightened security level, the United States. So some of these guys are being sent back to their bases. Never know. We don't know what's going on, what's going to happen in the next week, days, months. And they are not allowed to walk their children to the gate. They're not allowed to see their loved ones off, husbands, wives, children, who are going to serve in the military. And we have to remember, before 9-11, you could walk anybody to the gate. That's correct. So these security restrictions were put into effect because of what happened, and we so. So we're informed nobody is to go down to those gates unless they're ticketed passengers. That's what we're told. That's what I'm told by my lieutenant and the sergeants. That comes from the directive also from the FAA. We're not allowed to let them down. So this guy is getting a little heated now with me because I tell him, I'll make an exception because you're a police officer. But I said, I cannot let your whole entire group go down there. Was this police officer on duty and uniform? 
No, no, no. He was he was not on duty. None of them were. Uh, I think he was the only police officer. There might have been more, but no one identified herself as additional police officer. He was a Secretary of State investigator. So was he essentially a member of the security team for Minister Farrakhan and traveled with that security team when he was off duty, or he was? Yes, his capacity was in an off duty capacity. I told him that wasn't going to happen, and so he got a little pissed off about it. He asked to see one of my supervisors. And I said, no, no problem. No problem. So I called the watch commander up, the acting watch commander, sergeant that day, Walter Perkins. So he came to the top of the checkpoint. I met him about five feet away from that individual to explain what happened first. We walked up and he asked what he could do for him. The the sergeant asked what he could do for him. And the guy, again, produced uh, his Secretary of State star and his identification card and told him that he was there to pick up the minister, that he was on his detail, security detail, as like the other ones who were milling around, uh, literally 15 or 20 of them, you know, standing around. And I didn't think it was right to let them pass through down there when people who were sending off their family members or children to the military couldn't escort them. But he wants to be able to go down there. Perkins hears him out, and then he walks over to me and says, well, you know, Jerry, we make exceptions. This guy's a VIP. I go, Sarge, hold on a second. He's a VIP in what sense? I said, this guy's a religious fanatic. And I said, he's an anti-Semite. And I said, I don't prescribe anything he does. And I said, why do I have to let his group in when we don't even let these people take their kids down or we're going off to war? He said, well, you know, you're kind of blowing this out of proportion. I said, no, I'm not blowing it out of proportion. I said, you're the watch commander. If you choose to let them down there, that's your responsibility and that's your decision. I said, but I will tell you this. When I go on break, I'm going to notify the media and I'm going to let them know that we don't let family members of military families escort their children or their husbands or wives to the gates. But we're letting a group of 15 or 20 individuals go down and escort one man from the terminal who I don't see any kind of threat or any problems that can happen to him in a secure environment. And he goes, well, I don't think you want to do that. I said, well, I'm telling you. I said, okay, whatever you want to do. So he says, I'm going to let the FAA make a decision. So he called for the FAA. Gentleman from the FAA came up. And I was standing there. The sergeant told him what happened. He pointed out the group. The FAA guy said, well, what's the issue? He said, well, my officer said that he doesn't feel that he should be able to go down there and this and that, but I'm going to uh, decide what happens. And I want to know if you are okay with that. And the FAA guy said, well, I mean, you know, whatever you want to do. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, I don't understand that. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, just like I went through it again. I said, you can't let military family members go down there and take their children or their wives or husbands down to the gate and see them off, but you're going to let 15 or 20 guys go down to a secure environment to get one guy. And I said, whatever, man. I said, you you know, do what you, you know, you want to do. So I was relieved. Another guy came and met me. It was my time to go take my break. I went, took my lunch. I didn't notify the media because they decided not to let them go down there. I was in the station or the office And then I later asked the guy who relieved me, I said, did they go down there? And he said, nope, the FAA and uh, Perkins told him 
that they were going to say no, they weren't going to let them down there. And I think they were worried about you saying something to the media. The next day when I came to work, I was called into the lieutenant's office and chewed out by Carol. And he told me that, who the fuck do I think I am? I don't run this place. You don't know who that guy is, a VIP, and he's friends with the mayor. And I said, okay, you had me put at the checkpoint. That was my responsibility to ensure no one went down there that was unauthorized. And he goes, oh, okay, that's the way it is. I said, well, I'm just telling you that was my responsibility. He said, I need somebody to go out to Megsville today. We're short. I said, uh, okay. He said, take one of the squad cars. And then I sat in the car that was already assigned out there. I relieved the guy. I was sent out there for the next week or two. Is that punishment? Yeah, it's punishment. Mm -hmm. Because I wouldn't let those guys go down and pick up Farrakhan because I wouldn't bow down to the sergeant and the FAA guy to let them go down there. This is a really interesting story for a number of reasons. And it goes to something that weaves through so many conversations and things about Chicago and I guess large cities, but Louis Farrakhan is a very controversial guy. Had it been pre 9-11, there'd probably be zero issues, but it's post 9-11. Mm-hmm. Regardless of he's controversial, you're doing your job. Do you see in Chicago normally the guys like Louis Farrakhan, and I don't even know if there are other guys like him, but clergy are treated as VIPs that they can skirt certain laws. I know the history in, of Chicago and politicians and people abusing their power who aren't politicians, all of it. We know the history. There's so many stories, but, but like, is that a common thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess it happens because when I was in the 7th District on a beat car, I was on days and I got called to meet beat such and such. Didn't recognize the beat number. You know, didn't know every beat number or every unit, but I just didn't know who they were. So I was to meet them at like 71st and Ashland uh, regarding a ordinance complaint. So I go there and there's an unmarked squad car. There are two police officers, two black guys get out of the car. The one walks up, you know, he's got his star around his neck on a chain. He's got his gun. I see. Funny because I didn't see any handcuffs, but I would realize why not, why he wouldn't have them anyway. But they tell me that they were just in that store, which happened to be a grocery store, small grocery store, and that they were selling contraband paraphernalia, drug paraphernalia. And I said, and? And he said, well, we want you to, to write them a ordinance complaint. I go, well, you're the police too. Why aren't you writing them an ordinance complaint? Well, we're in the middle of something. I go, you're in the middle of finding a drug paraphernalia for me to fucking write a report for you? So the back door pops, out comes uh, Flager. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a, uh, he's a Catholic priest. I am familiar with him. Yeah, oh yeah. So he comes out and he's like, hey, how are you today? And Finnegan, you know, Mr. Finnegan, can you do me a favor? Uh, can you write? I owe father. I said, listen, I'll write the ticket. Okay. But I don't understand why your guys are driving you around and why you're looking. There's enough for us to do here for your guys to look for this stuff. And the one guy is, well, that's a poor attitude. I go, it's a poor fucking attitude, dude. Go somewhere else. There's so much shit going on here. I don't need you to fucking find the thing to write a ticket for a guy because he's selling rolling papers. And fucking bongs in his business. They got back in the car and then 
I hear them come on the zone because they're not on the zone. And it's the seventh and eighth district on that radio zone six. And they request the sergeant. So sergeant comes to the scene. I walk up to the car, speak to him when he gets out. And I tell him, and he's like, Jerry, you ain't going to win this one. Just fucking right to take it, dude. Believe me, this guy will get on the horn and be calling the fucking fifth floor. It's not worth it. I said, what, what are you going to fucking dump me? I'm already in the seventh district. What are you going to dump me fucking to five? No, I'm already in seven. Working in the ghetto, they're going to dump me because I don't want to write. I wrote the ticket because he asked me to write the ticket, the sergeant, pick your battles. And I said, okay, here's another one. This guy's riding around in a fucking unmarked car with two policemen. I don't even know why he had bodyguards at that time. I don't know if he had some threats, personal threats against them. Or, but I was just, I couldn't believe it. If he's so fucking worried about his safety, then why does he ride around with two fucking Knights of Columbus guys with their swords? the fuck's he tying up two policemen for? He went into a store and didn't like that they were selling rolling papers and he... They were looking. They were... They, listen, they went from... They were going to store to store. They just happened to find this store that had it out in public view. I mean, these fucking guys were driving around. Father Flager gets in the car with two cops and his objective is to just, he's bored and he just wants to find someone violating the law who has rolling papers. Yeah, because he's going to tie the ilks of Inglewood, but get rid of those bongs and, and fucking one-hitters and rolling papers. He's going to save the fucking world there. Still under investigation? Yeah, I don't. Neil, you know what, man? There's so much. I mean, I just, you know, he never stepped down. He was told to step down and he defied the Cardinal's order. Stayed in the church there. I'm going to pause here and sketch out who Father Flager is. I'm reading from Wiki. This can be sourced in multiple other places. Father Michael Louis Flager, born May 22nd, 1949, is an American Catholic priest and social activist located in Chicago. Since 1981, he's been a pastor of St. Sabina Catholic Church in Chicago's Auburn Grisham neighborhood. He's been the subject of a number of controversies, mostly involving his public comments and activities related to his pro-black stance on social issues. He was suspended on occasion for such incidences. Flager has been the subject of multiple sex allegations, including three in 2021 and one in 2022. All were found to be unsubstantiated by the Archdiocese of Chicago. So if you read down through Flager's wiki, you see a guy who is certainly not an advocate for free speech, has run campaigns going against rap music and lyrics that he deems unacceptable. There's also, ironically, an interaction with Louis Farrakhan, who he brought to speak at his church. He was suspended because he threatened a gun store owner that he wanted to shut down. Here's the rebuke against Flager from Cardinal George. Quote, publicly delivering a threat against anyone's life betrays the civil order and is morally outrageous, especially if this threat came from a priest. Unquote. Flager claimed that he did not intend to use the word snuff as a slang term for kill, but rather as a substitute for pull, as he used later in his statement. And here's where the controversy started. In May 2007, during a Rainbow Bush Coalition protest outside Chuck's gun range shop, Flager was accused of threatening the life of the owner, John Riggio. The Illinois State Rifle Association released a tape where Flager was heard telling the assembled crowd, quote, he's the owner of Chuck's, John Riggio, R-I-G-G-I-O. We're going to find you and snuff you out. 
you know you're going to hide like a rat. You're going to hide, but like a rat, we're going to catch you and pull you out. Flager later claimed his use of the phrase snuff you out has been misinterpreted. It goes on. You could read more stuff about Flager. He's a very controversial guy. He is a member of the clergy. Again, he was under investigation for alleged sex abuse that started in January of 2021. It's detailed here on his wiki page. He was exonerated in 2022. Back to Jerry. There was many stories with uh, with the city. That's really bizarre. Like you said, I can understand I'd be frustrated that you're dealing with life and death matters. And here's a guy, to use an analogy, it's like moving deck chairs around exactly. like the Titanic. Yep. As exactly. the ship's going down. One hitters and bongs. And I'm like, yeah, wow. As your career goes on and you end up getting indicted, do these things, these incidences... Is someone keeping score? Is there somewhere someone's going fucking Finnegan? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I would hate to think so, but anything's possible. Did it cross your mind, though, ever later on that you're like, oh, all that? Like, did you ever stop and go, I'm getting indicted for these things, but I wonder if, like, the Farrakhan thing and the Flager thing and the, the like, like, because you spoke to authority with inside the system. That was just who you are, and that's what made you a great cop, too. Did you ever stop to think that maybe that shit added up, too, and someone had it out for you somewhere? I mean, the thought did cross my mind, Neil, and, and it would later come into play. We'll, we'll get into in a further episode where a prominent politician. I think was involved in my initial indictment by the state. Plenty of ammunition to back that up. So we'll get into that later. Thank you again for listening. Our next conversation details the death of Jerry's youngest brother, John. The circumstances surrounding John's death have been cloudy and much of the evidence doesn't add up. It was alleged that John committed suicide at the residence of his girlfriend with the service weapon of his girlfriend. Stay tuned for that conversation and continue to follow us so you know immediately when Conversation 10 drops.